few. Ordinarily, this would be the point in the program where I would say something like, it's good to be with you or some such pleasantry. But to be totally honest with you, I find absolutely nothing pleasant about this hour of the morning. (laughs) You see, I'm a philosopher, both by disposition and by training, and the rigors of rising early in the morning do not sit well with philosophers at all. In fact, uh, according to uh, history, the French philosopher René Descartes had a great deal of difficulty getting up in the morning. In fact, he was known for the fact that he slept in until about noon on a regular basis. And late in his life, when he took a job as a tutor for Queen Christina of Sweden, she demanded that her lessons be early in the morning, first thing in the morning. And according to legend, the fact that he had to get up so early in the morning is what ultimately led to his poor health and uh, subsequent death shortly after he was hired. So I'm hoping that this morning my constitution is able to withstand the rigors of such intense intellectual activity at this ungodly hour. I honestly don't know how Sandy does it, and I don't know how you do either. I won't blame you a bit if you fall asleep before I'm finished. Well, uh, if I had realized um, that uh, we'd be here this morning instead of in the fellowship hall, I think I would have chosen a slightly different font. So I apologize for the fact that those of you who are sitting in the back probably can't really see the micro print that's up here on the front slide. But this morning, I wanted to spend a few moments with you talking about leadership. And the title of my talk is Leadership Without Ambition. Leadership Without Ambition. And this is likely the sort of title that is going to set the cat among the pigeons, so to speak. Because I think there's a common assumption in our culture that in order to be successful in leadership, one has to be ambitious. Um, I was reminded of this in a rather stark way this past summer. I had an opportunity to attend a leadership development training institute in Christian higher education. It was sponsored by one of the major professional organizations uh, that many Christian colleges and universities belong to. And while I was at this workshop, uh, I had an opportunity to interact with several prominent leaders in Christian higher education from around the nation. We had a time together where we were able to ask them questions about leadership, and this had been a question that had been on my mind for some time. So when I had the opportunity, I asked them the following question. Should those in leadership in Christian higher education or those who are seeking leadership positions in Christian higher education, should they be ambitious? And the answer almost immediately and unhesitatingly and unanimously from every one of the panelists was, yes, absolutely. Now, I think on one level, that reaction shouldn't surprise us at all. And the reason is, is because in today's ordinary language, I think the word ambition means something like passion or desire or drive. 
And I think it's conceived of as a morally neutral drive or a morally neutral motivation, if you will. And so obviously, if you're going to be successful in leadership, you've got to be motivated. If you aren't motivated, you're very likely to be a failure. But I think that um, the idea that ambition is innocuous, that it means nothing more than having the desire to get something done, is really a relatively recent innovation in our language. And I think one place that bears this out is actually if you just look up the term uh, ambition in the Oxford English Dictionary. Here's how it is defined. Ambition, according to the OED, is the ardent or, or inordinate desire to rise to high position or to attain rank, influence, distinction, or other preferment. Now, I, w- I don't want you to go away from this talk thinking that I'm only interested in the etymology of words. Because it turns out that ambition throughout the history of the Christian church um, has been looked upon as a sin. One of the key thinkers who wrote about ambition was Augustine. Here's what he wrote about his own ambition and his struggles with it in his very famous work, The Confessions. He prayed this. I aspired to honors, money, marriage, and you, Lord, laughed at me. In those ambitions, I suffered the bitterest difficulties. Your scalpel, Lord, cut to the quick of the wound so that I should leave all these ambitions and be converted to you. Now, we might pass this off and we might say, well, of course, those sorts of ambitions are ambitions that Christians ought not to aspire to. But when we're talking about just ambition generally, how is it that that's a problem? Well, here we have the testimony of one of my favorite philosophers in the history of philosophy. Uh, This is Thomas Aquinas, who writes with incredible clarity. And he considers the question in his enormous work, the Summa Theologica, whether ambition is a sin. And after his usual careful consideration of this question, here is what he concludes. Since then, ambition denotes an inordinate desire for honor. It is evident that it is always a sin. Now, I don't want you to think that this sort of moralizing is limited to the Roman Catholic Church. Consider the fact that John Calvin himself in his Institutes of the Christian Religion wrote this. Ambition is to be suppressed in favor of self-denial, which is to be embraced. And even closer to home, on our own shores, Jonathan Edwards, that great American theologian himself, noted that ambition is an affection. It's a passion of your heart. And it's one that, he says, moves a person to pursue worldly glory. And worldly affections for Edwards are those affections that are the wellspring of worldly action. So this morning, what I'd like to do as we open our scriptures and as we turn to Daniel chapter one, is I'd like to consider this common assumption that leadership requires ambition. In fact, I'd like to challenge this assumption that we must cultivate ambition to be successful in leadership. Now, I challenge this assumption not merely for nostalgia about the English language, nor do I challenge the assumption because Many thinkers in Christian history have found ambition inconsistent with Christian virtue. 
Rather, I want you to know that I am challenging this assumption because I think that Scripture presents us with an alternative paradigm, a paradigm where we can be leaders, indeed successful leaders, even in the absence of ambition. And that paradigm, of course, comes from Daniel chapter one. That's going to be our text this morning. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn there, I'm going to begin by reading the text in Daniel chapter one. Hear God's word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse? than the other young men at your age. The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand dreams and visions of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, He found them ten times better 
than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Pray with me briefly. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Now, as we begin Daniel chapter one, I think one of the first things that we see about the situation in which Daniel exercised his gifts of leadership is that he lived in a context of captivity. He lived in a context of captivity. This is clear from the very first verse in which we read that Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. Now, even though the context is clearly one of captivity, when we read a verse like this, I think there might be a temptation on our part to understand this verse as mere history. And certainly it is not less than history. And if this were a series on the book of Daniel, a multi-week series on the book of Daniel, we could probably spend a great deal of time getting into the nitty gritty of the historical details about the relationship between the dates of Jehoiakim's reign and the, the invasion that Nebuchadnezzar makes of Jerusalem and the timing of that siege, about which you might imagine there is absolutely no end in the commentaries. But this morning, I'm going to spare you those details because this is not a series on the book of Daniel. You're welcome. Uh, the important point for us this morning is that in addition to its being history, this verse about Nebuchadnezzar's siege of Jerusalem is not mere history. Rather, it is God's word to us. And part of what it's there for is not merely to satisfy our historical curiosity. It is rather to remind us of some present truths about our own circumstances today. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's siege of Jerusalem serves as a present continual reminder of the fact that until Christ returns, we live in enemy occupied territory. We live in enemy occupied territory. I think there are two passages of scripture that clearly illustrate the present parallels between Daniel's situation, his historic situation where Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem and our own cultural captivity. The first parallel, I think, comes from Ephesians chapter six, verse 12, Ephesians six, verse 12. Paul writes this about our own circumstances. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, I think it's often difficult for us to think of our own circumstances as circumstances of captivity. This is partly because we're not really aware of the spiritual warfare uh, in our day to day lives. I think this is also partly because we have inherited an incredible blessing living as we do in the United States of America. The blessings of a liberal democracy that have that has been founded by people who have understood God's sovereignty in the course of human events makes it difficult for us to understand that the earthly kingdom, particularly the kingdom of the United States, is not identical with God's kingdom. 
And so it makes it difficult for us to remember, as Paul points out in Ephesians 6:12, that we live in a context of captivity. Now, ordinarily, as I was preparing for this lesson, I was thinking that this was the sort of place where I needed to convince you that we live in a captive culture. I thought about going out and finding statistics of all sorts that might demonstrate the kind of captivity uh, that we live in. Uh, Perhaps statistics showing rates of crime, perhaps statistics showing uh, various beliefs that people in this country have and how they are at odds with a Christian worldview. But ultimately, I came to this conclusion. If you don't believe it, that we live in a culture of captivity, just open a newspaper. Just open a newspaper. Consider, I think, what's perhaps the best description of our cultural captivity that comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 says this, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. If that doesn't describe so much of our culture, so much of our world today, I don't know what does. And so the point here is that as we read about Daniel's context, which was clearly a context of physical captivity, part of what that should do for us is it should prompt us. It should remind us that we, too, live in a state of cultural captivity. Even though, unlike Daniel, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is not against worldly powers, but it is against spiritual forces. Now, this might be a source of great despair if it were not for a couple of important truths. You might even think of them as principles that are embedded in these first two verses in Daniel chapter 1. The first principle is this. Principle number one. Even in the midst of our cultural captivity, God is sovereign. God is sovereign even in the midst of our cultural captivity. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 of Daniel chapter 1 begins like this. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim. This is a remarkable verse. In fact, the more I read it, the more I wanted to cross out that phrase because it didn't sit well with me. You see, in the process of Nebuchadnezzar's invasion of Jerusalem, it wasn't merely as though God was removing his protection or sitting passively by. No, it's worse than that. Well, perhaps it's better than that. But at least from a human point of view, it looks worse than that. God is actively orchestrating the siege of Jerusalem. And this demonstrates his sovereignty, even in the midst of this cultural captivity. In fact, the theme of sovereignty is one of the great themes of the book of Daniel. And um, I encourage you just to read the entire book looking for that theme, the theme that God is in control. So the fact that we live like Daniel in the midst of our own cultural captivity should not be a source of despair for us. In fact, as we will see, it is Only the confidence that we have in God's final providence 
that enables us to resist the temptation to be ambitious. Trust in God's providence is what enables faithful obedience. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Notice also in verse two, a second principle. And this one's a little bit more esoteric, uh, but it's important for us to get our minds around. Principle number two is this. All cultural goods are stolen goods. All cultural goods are stolen goods. Because we might look around us, we might look at our society and we might think to ourselves, surely there is so much good in this world. And indeed, there is so much good in this world. There are things that we we ought to recognize as good gifts of art, of language, of literature, of government, of industry, of education, of medicine. All of these are good gifts. These are good things. But what's interesting about verse two in Daniel chapter one is that Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem. He raids the temple of the Lord and he carries off these treasures, these articles into the temple of his own gods. Now, in the historical context of this particular passage, this was a way in which Nebuchadnezzar would have demonstrated his total triumph over Jerusalem. It was a way of demonstrating even the triumph of his gods. And no doubt this was a wicked and abominable thing for him to do in the eyes of the Lord. But as wicked as it was, it's important to recognize that it says something about the nature of evil. Because the best that human wickedness can do is to steal, distort, misuse or abuse the existing goods that are already given by God. You see, evil is derivative. It is parasitic on the good. Good is original. It is primal. And all goodness finds its source in the one true and living God. James 1.17 bears this out. James writes this, and I know many of you will be familiar with this verse. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of heavenly lights. And we must remember, as we live in the midst of a captive culture, that when we encounter those cultural goods, that those goods are ultimately and finally gods, even when they are stolen. And this should be cause us to be mindful of the fact that these goods that we find around us in this culture, their origin is not in the world. They are goods that the world has stolen. And to the extent that we are engaged in the work of God's kingdom, as no doubt Daniel was, those stolen goods must be reclaimed for Jesus Christ. Now, it's vital to understand the connection between the stolen goods and the lure of the captors. For we might imagine that in the midst of his captivity, it was easy for Daniel and his friends to resist what the captors had to offer. After all, think about for a moment the situation in which they found themselves. They found themselves in circumstances where their homeland had been invaded, their temple had been desecrated, and their people had been carried off into exile. And under such circumstances, we might imagine that it would be very easy for Daniel and his friends to resist whatever sorts of lures that his captors might have put out to them. 
We might imagine that the painful memories of the invasion itself would have fostered a kind of resentment or perhaps even fueled a hatred for the enemy that would have built a lifetime of resistance against any kind of temptation that they may have faced in a foreign land. And surely on a psychological level, it's right for us to imagine that Daniel and his friends felt this way. But I think that this underestimates the lure of the stolen goods and the lure of the captivity itself. You see, when they are rightly ordered in God's economy, every good gift is indeed, as James puts it, a perfect gift from the Father. Whether we're talking about material wealth, whether we're talking about food or language or literature or art or health or government or industry or education, all of these, when they are put in service of the Lord, are good and they are gifts to be enjoyed by God's people. But when they are put in the service of the enemy, as they were in Daniel's day, they become a tool of misuse and abuse. And one of the chief ways in which those goods become abused in service of the enemy hands is to win over the hearts of the captives, to win over the hearts of the captives. And so in the midst of the context of cultural captivity, I want you to consider with me for a moment in the next several verses, the lure of the captivity that Daniel and his friends had to face. And the principal point that I want us to recognize here this morning is this. Even a culture of captivity presents opportunities for fulfilling one's ambitions. After Nebuchadnezzar completes his conquest of Jerusalem, he orders the selection of some of the finest of the young people from the captives to be trained for service in his palace. And among those who are selected are Daniel and his three friends, or at least we all have grown up in Sunday school calling them their friends. The text doesn't really tell us whether they were friends. For all we know, they could have sort of gotten along with each other, but not necessarily been friends. I'll continue to call them friends anyways for ease of reference this morning, and I hope you'll forgive me. Um, the three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Notice that the king gives three orders with respect to these individuals. First, he orders that they be taught the language of the Chaldeans. Second, he orders that they be assigned a daily portion of food and wine from the king's table. And third, he orders that their names be changed. He orders their names to be changed. Now, historically, in the context of this particular passage, the fact that the king selects these particular youths and assigns them new names in, is in keeping with his total conquest of Jerusalem. It's not enough for him to ransack the city and cart off its physical or material treasures. Rather, Nebuchadnezzar must signify his total triumph and his victorious status by taking the human treasures of Jerusalem as well, the cream of the crop, if you will, and put them in his service. And the picture of subjection is complete when he assigns them new names. This is an obvious affront to a culture and a nation like Israel, where names had so much significance in identifying a person's character. And indeed, I suspect some of you may have notes in your study Bibles which indicate that the name change is one that reflects uh, a change in reference from the, gods of, from the God of Israel to the gods of Babylonia. 
And so historically, this is where Nebuchadnezzar is marking his triumph, so to speak. But I don't think we should be misled into thinking that under such circumstances, the ability to resist the lures that were offered in conjunction with what the king was offering them would have come easily. For in addition to functioning as a sign of triumph, the fact that Daniel and his friends are given new names also reflects an invitation to a whole new way of life. It's almost as though they're being invited into a whole new sphere of influence. In effect, the opportunity to stand in the king's presence presented Daniel and his friends with an extraordinary temptation toward ambition. It is as if in giving the new names, Nebuchadnezzar signaled his intention to bring Daniel and his friends into a realm of power and influence that would have been scarcely imaginable to them prior to their captivity. And undoubtedly, the force of this temptation would have been great. We need not necessarily think about this temptation as somehow intrinsically wicked. In fact, if we put ourselves for a moment sort of imaginatively in Daniel's shoes, we might even imagine him thinking about the temptation to, toward ambition as one which he could put into good use. Imagine for a moment that we've had our land besieged by a foreign enemy. We've just had our temple ransacked and robbed of its finest treasures. And now we've been carried away into exile, away from all that is familiar, from family and from friends. And now Daniel and his friends find themselves in a moment of opportunity. They have just been selected out of all of the captives to train for service in the palace. Imagine the thoughts that might have crossed their mind. At last, an opportunity for a calculated revenge, an opportunity to obtain power and having obtained power to take it away from one's enemies and to use it for good. Surely this thought must have crossed their mind on more than one occasion. After all, they were being trained for positions of service in the enemy's house. But as tempting as this might be, the, the invitation to this sort of prestige comes with a price. And in Daniel's case, the place that he is offered in his captor's kingdom is offered in exchange for his cultural loyalty. And we see this in verse 5, where Daniel and his friends are offered food and wine from the king's table. Now, if you're like me, uh, you've probably read this passage many times, and you have heard it said, and indeed many commentators say, that the reason that Daniel and his friends ultimately refused the food and the drink from the king's table is because it was ritually unclean. It was ritually unclean. But at least one commentator that I looked at, and one that I think I agree with on this point, has pointed out that this particular interpretation has an important problem. In fact, it has a couple of problems. In the first place, while it is likely true that the food that would have been served at the king's table would have been offered to idols and hence making it ritually unclean, this would have been true of just about everything in Babylon because Babylonian culture offered everything to idols, including the vegetables and perhaps even the water that Daniel and his friends would have eaten. 
So there's a sense in which every other kind of food that they could have eaten from in that culture would have been ritually unclean. So it doesn't really necessarily make sense to say that his refusal to eat the king's food is because it was ritually unclean. The second point is this. Even though in Levitical law, uh, it was clear that there would have been prohibition against certain forms of unclean meats, there wasn't such a prohibition in the case of wine, unless, of course, Daniel had taken Nazarite vows. And there's no indication from the text that either he or his friends had done so. So I don't think that saying that the reason that Daniel and his friends reject the king's food is explained because of its ritual uncleanness, even though that may have been part of the case. I think the better answer about the question, why did they reject the king's food, is already suggested by something I've said. Daniel and his friends were invited to the prestige of the king's service, but the prestige to which they were invited had a price. And the price was cultural loyalty to the king. Here's how one commentator puts it. By Eastern standards, To share a meal was to commit oneself to friendship. It was of covenant significance. Those who had thus committed themselves to allegiance accepted an obligation of loyalty to the king. It would seem that Daniel rejected this symbol of dependence on the king because he wished to be free to fulfill his primary obligations to the God he served. The defilement was not so much a ritual as a moral defilement arising from the subtle flattery of gifts and favors, which entailed hidden implications of loyal support, however dubious the king's future policies proved to be. John Calvin suggests that Daniel's temptation in sharing food and wine from the king's table was a temptation to selfish ambition. It is, as it were, a temptation to make a name for oneself. Yet this temptation is nothing new in Daniel's day. For the temptation toward ambition, indeed, even its connection with making a name for oneself, is an ancient one. Consider for a moment, if you will, the fact that ambition is an ancient sin. There are two passages of Scripture that makes this clear. And I won't actually turn there now in the interest of time. But if you'll just make a note of them to look at them later. The first comes from the account of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And in that story, the people come together and they say, let's build a skyscraper. But it's not so much a story about architecture as it really is a story about ambition and pride. Because remember what they say about the purpose for which they build the tower. They say, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. The second story is even older. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. And in the Garden of Eden, when the serpent approaches Eve and begins to tempt her, and ask her questions about the command that God had given not to eat of the fruit in the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says to her, you will not die if you eat of this fruit. But what? You will be like God. You will be like God. As ancient as this temptation to ambition is, it is one that has not gone away. The lure of power and prestige in exchange for loyalty to one's cultural captors is not something 
to which even the most devout are immune. And this is something that has been pointed out, uh, I think, quite nicely by Charles Colson. And I don't mean Second Presbyterian's very own Chuck Colson. I mean the Charles Colson, who is no stranger to the halls of power. Here's what Charles Colson writes. Quote, when I served under President Nixon, one of my jobs was to work with special interest groups, including religious leaders. We would invite them to the White House, wine and dine them, take them on cruises on the presidential yacht. Ironically, few were more easily impressed than religious leaders. The very people who should have been immune to the worldly pomp seemed the most vulnerable, end quote. Now, it's crucial to understand this morning that I'm not suggesting for a moment that rightful authority or for that matter, power or wealth or any other God given or earthly good is somehow intrinsically wicked. Please don't misunderstand me on that point. After all, remember that I pointed out at the very beginning that every earthly good is ultimately a good from God. Nothing is pernicious about power itself, whether we are speaking of the power of influence or the power of position. What is pernicious is the desire that we cultivate for such power and the compromises we are willing to make to attain it. And this is the essence of ambition. Perhaps no one has written more powerfully about this than one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. In an essay of his entitled The Inner Ring, I highly recommend it if you haven't read it before. It's in a collection uh, called The Weight of Glory and Other Essays. The Weight of Glory and Other Essays. The essay itself is entitled The Inner Ring. Lewis speaks about this desire in relationship to the lure of membership in an exclusive group. A group that Lewis aptly calls and he defines as the inner ring. Here's what Lewis writes. I am not going to say that the existence of inner rings is in itself an evil. It is certainly unavoidable. But the desire which draws us into inner rings is another matter. A thing may be totally morally neutral, and yet the desire for that thing may be morally dangerous. In a similar way, Daniel and his friends, despite their evident captivity, were offered entrance into an inner ring. Yet the price of admission was compromise. In a nutshell, it was loyalty to a pagan kingdom. And to the extent that we now find ourselves in a context of cultural captivity, we should ask ourselves this question. How do we respond? How do we respond? If I am faced with opportunities for fulfilling my own ambitions at the expense of my allegiance to Christ, then what am I to do? And I believe that Daniel gives us a portrait of what leadership without ambition in the midst of cultural captivity looks like. And in the time we have this remaining, remaining this morning, I want to consider Daniel's leadership as faithfulness expressed in his obedience to God. First of all, notice that Daniel chooses faithfulness over ambition because he trusts in God's divine sovereignty. He chooses faithfulness over ambition because he trusts in God's divine sovereignty. If we are going to overcome the temptation toward ambition, 
then we must believe that God is sovereign, even in the midst of our own cultural cultural captivity. The temptation toward ambition is the greatest, perhaps, when we fail to believe that God is in control of the events and circumstances in our lives. And surely this is a temptation that Daniel must have felt. He and his friends could have easily reached the conclusion that God had effectively abandoned them, that he was no longer ordering and controlling their life circumstances. And faced with such a thought, the temptation to believe that one must take matters into one's own hands, so to speak, must have been tremendous. Here they were in a foreign land. They had an opportunity to move into a position of service that might open up other avenues to control their own destinies. And if they had reached the conclusion that God had deserted them, the temptation to compromise by realigning their cultural allegiance would have been overwhelming. After all, eating the food offered by the king seems a small price to pay for such a promising opportunity. Of course, they do not succumb. But I believe this is partly because Daniel implicitly recognizes what we saw in the beginning in verse 2. Namely, that God is in control even in the midst of our cultural captivity. What makes it possible for Daniel to choose faithfulness over ambition is his firm conviction that God is in control. Consequently, the final outcome of Daniel's actions do not rest on his ability to attain power through compromise. Since God is in control, Daniel is freed from the need to be ambitious for the course of human events do not depend upon his efforts. And in the same way, if we are going to choose faithfulness over ambition in the midst of our own captive culture, we must trust in the sovereignty of God. We must believe that he is in control of human affairs And he will honor and use our faithfulness even when it appears that acting upon ambition would be more effective as a means of accomplishing his purposes. The question, of course, is how do we do this? What does this look like? When we look at Daniel's response to his own circumstances, I think we can pull out several principles. And these are the the next principles that I want to talk about. I want to turn our attention to these principles. I'm going to have to go through them quickly. Because I'm running out of time. Principle number one, resolution is required. Resolution is required. Notice that Daniel chooses in verse eight. Love the beginning of verse eight. But Daniel resolved, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's food and wine. Daniel had a choice and he made it. And I think the word resolve suggests the strength of the decision of his choice. And we would make a mistake this morning in thinking that leadership without ambition is some kind of half-hearted, passive enterprise. It is not. If you are going to lead without ambition, it requires resolve. If Sandy Wilson were here, he would probably say with all sorts of gusto, this is leadership for men. I can't get away with it. I'm not Sandy Wilson. (laughs) Principle number two, choose obedience over opportunism. When he was confronted with the opportunity to throw his lot in with the king by eating from his table and thereby securing an attractive opportunity for advancement in otherwise terrible circumstances, Daniel chooses obedience over the opportunity. 
This is because he recognized that the opportunity itself required a kind of disobedience. He would have been required to defile himself by eating from the king's table, thereby signifying his disloyalty to God and his new loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. But the principle is clear. No opportunity, however great, should be an occasion for disobedience. Leading with faithfulness requires us to relinquish opportunities when disobedience is a condition for pursuing them. Principle number three, obedience is never an excuse for neglecting rightful responsibilities. Although Daniel chooses to obey God in refusing to eat from the king's table, he does not use his obedience as an occasion for neglecting his rightful obligations in the circumstances altogether. Notice that in verse 12, Daniel proposes an alternative plan. And in proposing this plan, what Daniel effectively does is he acknowledges that obedience to God does not entail some kind of exemption from being a steward of one's God-given gifts or one's God-given roles. Daniel clearly recognizes God's sovereignty in bringing him and his friends into the service of the king. Moreover, he would have naturally understood that his selection from among all the captives would have been based on his capacities for excellence in the king's service. Thus, Daniel must have understood his obligation to be a faithful steward of those gifts that God had given him in the situation in which God placed him. Thus, as verse 12 indicates, Daniel does not use his obedience as an excuse for checking out altogether. It's not as though he says, I'm not going to participate whatsoever in the effort to serve the king. Rather, what he does is he crafts a plan that enables him and his friends to demonstrate obedience while simultaneously continuing to steward their gifts in service of the king. And the point here is that while obedience is central to leading with faithfulness, obedience is never an excuse for neglecting the stewardship of one's gifts. Principle number four, obedience does not presume God's blessing. What's remarkable about the obedience of Daniel and his friends is that they do not presume that in obeying God, things will necessarily turn out for their own personal benefit. When he goes to the king's servant and he who had been put in charge of them and proposes this alternative plan, Daniel effectively gives permission for the king's officials to deal with them according to the results. Now, I suspect that the majority of this a majority of us read into this passage a kind of confidence on Daniel's part. It's as though we imagine Daniel thinking something like this. You go ahead and run this test because I'm confident that in the end of the test we will come out a whole lot better than everybody else will. Now, I think that it's a mistake to think that Daniel may have made it in that spirit, because even though he was confident, his confidence does not rest on the presumption that God will somehow work out the results in his favor. In short, his obedience does not presume God's blessing. And I think we know this particularly from another episode that occurs later in Daniel in chapter three that involves his three friends. We're not going to turn there now in the interest of time, but if you make a note of Daniel 3, verses 17 and 18, when Daniel and Daniel's friends stand before the king who are about to throw them in the fiery furnace for refusing to bow down and worship at the idol, they say, we will not bow down and worship because we are confident that God can save us. But then here's the key phrase. But even if he doesn't, 
we will not serve you and we will not bow down to this idol. But even if he doesn't, they do not presume in the circumstances that God will automatically work out things for their good. They do not make their obedience a presumption on their part for God's blessing. Finally, principle number five, obedience must characterize the pattern of one's entire life. Late in Daniel's life, perhaps the story for which he is the most famous, he is drawn into a trap that ultimately results in his being thrown into the den of lions. What's remarkable about this story is Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Make a note of it, turn to it later, because what it says about Daniel is that obedience characterizes the pattern of his whole life. He goes after he learns of the new law, which is clearly designed for his trap, that no one is to pray except to the king. And he prays to his God three times a day. And what is the phrase? Just as he had done before. Just as he had done before. This was not a one-time episode in their life. This was a pattern that characterized their whole life. The beauty of the story is that God uses Daniel's faithfulness and his obedience to engage the culture in which he found himself, which was a culture of captivity. And I think the same is true for us today. To the extent that we model Daniel's pattern of faithfulness and obedience in our leadership, shunning the temptation toward ambition, God will use our faithfulness and honor our faithfulness to engage the captive culture in which we live. And so this morning I want to close by just highlighting quickly from the text several things that effective cultural engagement requires. First, effective cultural engagement requires understanding the culture in which we live. I think it's amazing that while Daniel refuses the king's food, he does not refuse the king's education. Rather, as verse 17 tells us, God gives them knowledge and understanding. Presumably, I'm assuming from the context, knowledge of the Chaldean literature, knowledge of the Chaldean language. You see, if we are going to engage the culture in which we live, then we must understand it. For it is only when we understand the culture in which we live that we can have a prophetic witness to speak over and against it. But secondly, cultural understanding must take place within a context of an explicit refusal to identify with the culture in which one lives. And this is the second point. Daniel and his friends did this. And I can't overstate how important this is for our own day, because so much of our culture today is based on consumption. And consumption is a means of participation. It's a means of identifying with the culture in which we live. It is, in effect, as though we were eating from the king's table. And we need to be cautious about our identification with the culture in which we live to the extent that we understand it as one of captivity. But the task of refusing to identify with a culture is not something we can do alone. And this is why the third principle is important. Community is vital as a means of sustaining a distinct identity. Notice that verse 12 says that as bold as he was in approaching the king's servant, in proposing this alternative plan, Daniel was not a maverick. It was not as though he said, I'll take this all upon myself and I'll accomplish this on my own. Rather, he says, notice, test your servants, your servants. He recognized that to do this, to live this out, he had to surround himself with people who were like-minded. 
And in the same way, if we are going to be effective in engaging our culture, one, one that is captive to the principalities and powers of the world, we must carve out a community to sustain a distinct identity. Yet, this countercultural community of which I speak cannot be successful if it is a community that is merely set apart, that doesn't do anything for the culture in which it lives, that doesn't, so to speak, get its hands dirty. And so the fourth principle that comes clearly from this chapter this morning is that one must serve the culture in which one lives. Verse 19 tells us that this is precisely what Daniel and his three friends did. And I think that a similar vision is expressed in a letter that Jeremiah wrote to those who were living as exiles in Babylon. This will be a familiar passage to many of you. Jeremiah 29 says this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried off into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is clearly the example that we find embodied in the life of Daniel. He is someone who served God faithfully, and in so doing, he was a leader who led without ambition. And my prayer for all of us this morning is that we will embody this pattern in our lives. Will you pray for me as we close? Lord Jesus Christ, cause these truths from your word to be burned into our hearts, to be applied to our lives. Give us grace to be leaders who can lead apart from the desire to cultivate our own ambitions. Give us hearts that will be obedient and faithful to you, that will not compromise in the midst of our cultural captivity. Trusting always in your sovereignty to work in the midst of such obedience to engage the culture which so desperately needs you. This we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.